Welcome to the Columbia Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Balkum, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Now, enjoy the message. Man, isn't it incredible to see what the food pantry is doing? I think it remains the largest church-based ministry of its type in the area where people receive not only uh, groceries and uh, non-perishables, but they receive fresh vegetables from gardens that our volunteers tend and and keep. And I'm so grateful for our volunteers, for uh, Greg and Rachel and those who lead this ministry, Bruce Barr and other lay people who are so committed, and to you, Columbia, for your continued commitment to Spend Yourself and the Spend Yourself Gardens. Now, it's been a huge week in our nation. Again, it feels like everyone is these days, and uh, I know you join me in praying that we'll be able to come together as a people and that uh, there will be some unity and peace in our land. It is our habit to pray for an incumbent president or a reelected president on the Sunday before the inauguration, and we'll hold to that habit. But I just ask you to join me in prayer for peace and the well-being and the prosperity in Jesus' name of our nation and that Christians in our nation, that churches in our nation in these days would be witnesses, as we'll talk about today, of what is possible because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's what Paul begins to get to here in Philippians. It's a really important section, and it's a section in which it's easy to miss a lot. And so I'm looking forward to diving into this second half of Philippians chapter 3. But before I do, let me set the context a bit and ask you, how do you describe your days right now? I find this really fascinating. So like I am always asking people, you know, how are you doing? It used to be everybody would say fine. I actually preached a sermon about that. No matter what's happening, we say fine. I almost never get fine right now, ever. I get some deeper uh, discussion about a particular time or place or day. and, And people typically, they say something that sounds like this. Well, you know, doing the best I can, holding up, whatever the case may be, think I'm going to make it. Or they may tell me they're really discouraged, really distressed, really depressed. Uh, Some people will tell me they're having a really hard time managing. So one thing I can be grateful for in this moment is that if you know a person, even marginally, and you ask them how they're doing, they're more likely to share their heart right now and their feelings. And that's because we're all in the same boat to some extent. So we don't feel at least alone in our suffering or alone in our discomfort or alone in our fear as much as maybe normally we would. We look around and discover that people are coping in various ways, some better off than others, but at the end of the day, many of us are dealing with the same things. Now, one approach that people seem to take and one reaction I get when I say, hey, how's it going, is people tend to refer to one of my favorite all-time, now you know how I love movies, cult classic movies. In fact, one of my frustrations right now is there are no movies coming out. I realize this is a first world problem. But I think I've seen just about everything there is to be offered, some good movies and some just not even that good that Debbie and I have been watching. And I'm I'm waiting for some new things to be produced. I'm waiting for something else to come out. But when we have that happen to us, maybe we return to some of the golden oldies. And for me, this is one of them. How many of you love the movie Groundhog Day? I mean, this is... This is Bill Murray's greatest thing ever. I love this movie. I mean, I could watch this movie. This movie is Groundhog Day for me. I can watch it again 
and again and again and enjoy it every single time. This is one of those movies I know the lines to. You know, you have to be really careful when you might watch a movie like that because you start saying the words out loud and you really irritate the people around you when you do that. You know what I'm talking about? So I was watching a movie with one of my nieces. She knew every single word to that movie. This was last Christmas and she said every line in the movie before the line was said. And I was being really patient and finally I said, honey, please, please, please. (laughs) So you got to be careful. But I know every line to this movie. And when I ask people a lot of times, and this is the way my wife tends to respond, you know, how's it going? They say, every day is, you want to repeat it with me? Groundhog Day, right? And so you can't figure out which day of the week it is. Every day has a sameness about it. Some of the things that sort of marked your life. Now, if you think about this, like travel that you did or people that you saw or, or special events that people celebrated together, big church celebrations, whatever the case may be, those things are off your calendar, which was really nice for a while when this felt like a, a snow day. But now that it feels like a blizzard and beyond, now that you feel locked in for a while, those markers are gone. And we mark time with those markers, not with clocks. We mark time with kairos movement of of things, with event movement of things. And so everybody's sort of feeling that this is Groundhog Day. Now you have to be careful when you get into that mode because what I find is whenever I get into a place where I am dreading the next day and just saying, let me make it through it, instead of asking what is possible in that day, my life will quickly go down the drain. I will quickly gain a perspective that is not helpful to me or to anyone else. So whenever I catch myself in life, I find myself writing in my journal that I'm dreading things. Instead of looking forward to things, I've got to change my posture in some way. Maybe you answer like this, though. Maybe you say, you know, it's Groundhog Day. Every day's like this. And that makes it tough for us to do something that we've probably talked about all of our life. Carpe diem, seize the day. How do you seize a day if the day seems to be seizing you? Or if you feel seized up in the day, how do you claim it? I mean, we're followers of Jesus and we're people of the word. And I think we want to be people who wake up every morning and say, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will, I will rejoice and be glad in it. So how do we seize a day when we sometimes feel seized by the moment and when we sometimes feel seized up in the moment? Well, Paul gives us great instruction In Philippians, so we've been reading Philippians 4, 4 through 7, 12 through 14 every week. These words have started to really sink in and penetrate my being. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says, and I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness or moderation be evident to all because the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with Eucharisteo, with gratitude, with thanksgiving. Present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry today, whether living in plenty or in want today. I cannot do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, fear produces anxiety, anger, depression, dread. All these things are products of fear working within us, as I discussed in the last couple of weeks, but we can choose our emotional responses. Now, again, I'll say maybe not the first blush, 
Maybe not our first feeling, but once we get a sense of what we're feeling and we can figure out why, we can think this through in light of God's word and we can change our attitude or our posture. Anger's a defense mechanism. It comes naturally. You, you will never have to work on being angry. I don't know about you, but there's not one time that I've ever said, you know, I think I'll be angry. It just happens. It's something that creeps up. Like you can feel it creeping up in your body until it gets to, to an inflamed brain. I, I mean, it gets to the point where it overtakes us. And, and that's because it is a natural response to fear. It is a natural defense mechanism. It is a wall-building exercise, if you will. It's a justification exercise. But gratitude is a discipleship model. It is a whole life discipleship skill. It's a muscle you have to build and use. Now, the secret is joy that is grounded in Eucharist Deo, thanksgiving no matter what, and the key is Christ's presence. So Paul is able to say, here's the secret. I can do all this through him who gives me strength, or as I interpret or translate the Greek, in all things I have endurance in the one who is empowering me. Now, last week I taught you a little bit about the history of the church, the early history of the church, and about the conflict, if you will, between Peter and James and others and even people who were more strongly positioned than they, the Judaizers, the people who believed that righteousness came through the fulfillment of the law even after the Messiah had come. And so anyone who would come into the Christian faith, should that even be possible? Should a Gentile be able to become a follower of God through Jesus? If that were possible for them, then that person would first have to convert to Judaism and follow all of the strictures of the Mosaic law. Peter represents that group. James, even more fully at a period of time, represents that group. Peter will become, in what we call the incident in Antioch, Peter will become the bridge between James and the Judaizers and between Paul and the Christian libertarians, or the people who believed we had freedom in Christ and the law no longer bound us. We wanted to live lives in accordance to the law, but not to fulfill the law. We wanted to live them in gratitude for what Christ had done. I told you how important this church was, both to Paul and to the Gentiles and the early church. This church at Philippi was an open-door church or a gateway church to Europe, the first one Paul established there, full of prominent Gentiles. And so Paul begins chapter 3 speaking to them and saying, listen, the law has been superseded. The law has been put aside. It was a guardian, as Paul will say in another place. It was a keeper until Jesus could come. But once Jesus had come, and once the Father is incarnated in the Son on earth, and once we are grateful, we now live lives differently. Now, here's the problem for Paul. That theology is empty if people in their liberty, if people in their liberty choose to live lives that are inconsistent with God's law. If people choose to live immoral lives, there's another place, I told you last week, that Paul sometimes uses what would have been called in his day profanity. I'm not sure the profanity he uses is like some of the profanity I hear now. It's milder than that. But these would have been common expressions, profane expressions. And another place he does that, you know, you can study this yourself, is in one place, and really in two, he says, should we then go on sinning so that grace may abound? Should we use our liberty to do whatever we want to, counting on the forgiveness of God so people can see how powerful or we can see how powerful that forgiveness is? And his response to that immediately is a Greek word. The Greek word is meganoita. And it literally, I'm just going to tell you, literally it means hell no. 
It's a really powerful word. It's like, no way. And he says it in such a way that his readers understand how opposed he is to the notion that we can have liberty and do whatever we want as opposed to the notion that we can be responsible with liberty and we can live lives in accordance with the truth of the word of God. So the second half of this chapter three of Philippians is all about that. It's about how this theology is justified and we as free people in Christ are justified because out of gratitude to God, we choose to live righteous lives by the power of the Holy Spirit simply because we can. Now, you know, a lot of times when we want to prove to someone we have a choice, we will be rebellious, right? And we see a lot of that these days where people say, I have my rights and therefore I have the right to do whatever I want to do. In another place, Paul said, look, all things are rightful. You do have the right to do whatever you want to do. And he says, not all things are wise. And so when we're focused on proving to everybody that we are free and we can do whatever we want, we have completely abrogated the purpose of freedom, which is to be able to choose the right, as Abraham Lincoln said in the Gettysburg Address, to choose the right as God has shown us the right, as we're able to see the right. So the thing is, yes, you are free to rebel. That is your choice. God has given you free will, and you are free to live an unrighteous, immoral, unethical life, and you are free to be unjust. Yes, you are free to do those things. I'm not talking about U.S. law or or anything like that. I'm talking about the law of God. But you are free to choose the right. We can Choose what is right and good and noble and true, and that tends to be a builder of life instead of a destroyer of life. It's a really intriguing argument that Paul makes. Now, the question is, is he right? I I think I could show you proof across the years that maybe the Judaizers were right. Maybe if we don't hold people to a strict law, they won't know how to behave. Maybe it's possible that human nature is so debauched and degraded and broken that people will not behave unless they have to. Maybe that's true. Maybe law and order is the way. And I think some Christians, frankly, tend to make that argument. But Paul's argument is, no. It is no longer necessary that we be under the law because now the law is the love of Jesus. This is what Paul says. The love of God is the law. And Paul will say in another place, and the love of Christ constrains us. We are free to make choices for the right, for the good, for the noble, the true, for the just, the upright. How do we use our freedom? Well, Paul has a reason to be concerned. If the Philippian Christians use their freedom to live as the other Gentiles do, who he will later call enemies of the cross, and I'll talk about that in a moment. If they choose to exercise their citizenship in the world rather than to recognize their citizenship in the kingdom of God, then everything he has argued for will be undercut and the Judaizers will win. They will have been right. People are louses. They can't be trusted to choose the good, to choose the right. But if the church at Philippi and others like it use their freedom 
to choose to respond in gratitude to the cross and empty tomb of Jesus by living righteous lives that look like the law, even if they're not under the law, if they make that decision, then Paul is right. Now, the good news is I can also prove to you that Jesus changes everything for so many people. So many people do choose the right out of their gratitude. It's amazing. Did a funeral this past week, and funerals are interesting right now. They're hard, honestly. They they feel totally different. This one still was beautiful, but they're just strange. Distance at a funeral is an awkward thing. It's a strange thing. But this funeral was for a friend of mine that I've known for two decades and, uh, or so. And, and I met him long before I was his pastor here at Columbia. He used to live on the northern neck of Virginia. And Debbie and I lived there for a while. And we'd travel there sometimes. And one thing I love to do, I miss in the fall so much, is rock fishing. Now, you know, if you lived on a lake, rock is called striped bass. But it's rock. If you live here, don't let me hear you say striper. It's rockfish. So you go out into the Rappahannock or one of its tributaries or you go out into the Potomac and you drop, if you're in the Potomac, you drop a deep wire line into the water and you can be there for hours and all of a sudden the rocks start hitting. And man, they're great fish to catch, but they are delicious fish to eat. If you've never had rockfish cooked correctly, you really haven't yet lived life. And that might be why you're not yet grateful. That's possible. Rockfish, so good. So good. Even Chris Clifford would like rockfish. Chris won't eat anything that swims, by the way. So I, I was out on a boat with a group of guys. This one friend of mine had a friend, and this particular friend was willing to take us out. It was a nice boat, a big boat. If you're going to go to the Potomac, you're not going to go out in a rowboat. You need a decent boat, and he had a nice boat, a charter-type boat, and he would take us out fishing that day. And so anyway, this friend of mine, he's a great guy, but he's really kind of disorganized. And this particular guy, we got up late. Uh, we, we stayed in a farmhouse that he had out in the northern neck of Virginia. There was no alarm clocks in anybody's room. And by the way, this is before cell phones were really big. And so you might ask me, why didn't you just set your iPhone? There was no iPhone a couple of decades ago. And so at any rate, we all woke up late. He was supposed to get us all up. He woke up late. He had this vision for a big breakfast. He goes about making biscuits and eggs and all you do for a big country breakfast. We eat this big breakfast. By the time we get to this particular guy's boat, it's about an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes after we were supposed to arrive here. And he was not happy. And he just said the minute we got there, you know, the best fishing of the day is already over. You guys slept through it or ate through it or whatever it is you did. But we went out and we had a great time. And that guy turned out to be a great guy, Rob. And he became a friend of mine. And eventually he wound up in a men's group that I led. And, and so for a long time, I got to hear his story. And so this past week, preaching his funeral, he died at 62, suddenly on his boat. You never know. You never know how many days you have. He was at the top of his game. The preaching his funeral would have been drudgery were it not for the fact that Jesus had so beautifully changed his life. And his story was this amazing story of what Jesus had done for him, how he'd been forgiven in the cross and resurrected through the empty tomb. And this incredible testimony that he would give over and over again, ignored nothing from his past and had incredible hope for the future. And he'd tell this story again and again. I never got tired of hearing it about how Jesus has changed his life. And when he tells this story, what you're hearing is gratitude. He's so grateful. And he turned his life 
completely in a different direction in terms of what it was about, what it was centered on and centered in. And he became an incredibly righteous follower of Jesus Christ. And and he did that out of gratitude, not because he was following some law, but because he was so incredibly grateful for what God had done. And so a funeral like that, even if somebody went too quickly, is not that hard to do because you wake up in the morning and you know that this is what you're going to say. Jesus changed his life. He followed him with his life, gave his life to him. And I know where he is for eternity. And life is short, friends, no matter how long it is. Short. So stories like that, they remind me that the law of the love of Jesus is so powerful, our gratitude can be so overwhelming that it can compel us to live lives that are so noble that others can follow them. Now, this is what Paul is going to do. He's going to talk about taking hold. And as he does it, what you need to understand is he is going to set himself up as an example. I have people talk to people in Colombia and in other places across the years that get irritated by Paul because they believe he is self-serving in the way he holds himself up. Let's think about that for a minute. So, for example, a few years ago, we, in our discipleship ministry, printed off this set of shirts with Columbia on the front and on the back. They had 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1 Corinthians 11.1 is Paul's expression. He says, follow Jesus or follow me as I follow Jesus. And we had some leaders, I even see one in here, who would not wear these shirts. He said, I'm not wearing that shirt. I'm not going to say to people, follow me as I follow Jesus. To, to them, it was like putting a fish on the back of your car and then driving like a maniac, I think. They just weren't going to do it. That, that puzzled me. I said to one person, why not? And well, Paul's arrogant, they said, when he holds himself up as a model. Is that really true? Let's think about this for a minute. So Paul's already established in the second chapter of Philippians the model of Jesus who was obedient even unto death, death on a cross, and therefore was humble. And so Paul holds that up as the standard. And then he will say, in a moment we're going to read this, he will say, look, I have not gotten there. I have not arrived. But what he is inviting people to do is follow him on a journey. Now I need you to know something. You cannot follow Jesus Christ in hiddenness. You cannot. This is really clear biblically. You either walk in a way that people can understand and see, or you're not following Jesus. You're just taking care of yourself. Because when we follow Jesus, we serve others when we say, follow me as I follow Christ. Now look, I'm a preacher. I get this whole thing. It puts you in a fishbowl. Don't let me kid you. Being a preacher, you're in a fishbowl all the time. But every Christian should be in a fishbowl all the time. Every follower of Jesus should be able to say, look, I don't do it exactly right every time. I haven't already arrived, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I press on. You follow me and you'll be on the same journey I'm on. So welcoming people onto this journey is really important. I gotta ask you before I read the scripture, are you doing that right now? This is a weird time in Columbia, I'm telling you. People are moving away because they always do. We're in this area and we're unable to reach a lot of new people, which is intriguing. It's gonna mean we have to real rebuild the church when this is all over. I, I, I can't say this enough, but why wait till then? Why not now? that we're inviting people to journey with us. They're lonely. You've got neighbors who need to be on this journey. 
Why not now? To be a Christian is to say, follow me as I follow Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul's going to do here. So let's read this together. Not that I've already obtained all of this, he continues from where we left off last week, or have already arrived at my goal. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of this then, all of us then, who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too, God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I've often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now, Paul knows. Paul knows that these Gentile converts need a model. They haven't had one. Remember, they haven't lived around other Christians. They need somebody like Paul to be willing to say, just follow me on the journey. I haven't yet arrived, but follow me. And what he talks about is taking hold. It's a really interesting word, and I'm going to, as I have been, teach you a few Greek words that I think will help you understand this passage a little better. So in Philippians 3, 12, he says, take hold of that which Jesus took hold of me. I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of me. He says that he has taken hold. A couple of Greek words here. The first one is katalambano. Katalambano means to be seized. It means to be grabbed. And so when Paul says that Christ has taken hold of him in chapter 3, verse 12, what he's saying is that he's been seized by it. He's been captured by it. But Catalambano actually has a deeper meaning. It means not only to be seized or grabbed, but it also means to be understood. So it's not being seized in such a way that you're being controlled, is it? It's being seized in such a way that you're truly known and loved for who you are. And that's the love of Christ that constrains us, the love of Christ that makes us grateful. So what Paul is saying is, look, he really knows me. Jesus knows exactly who I am and loves me anyway. And that love has seized me. It's taken hold of me. And so Paul uses another word. It's really the same word, another form of it, catalabo. And catalabo means to seize or to understand. So he's saying, look, I have done the same to God. I have reached out and I have taken hold of God. I have seized him, which means not only, not only have I grasped him, but I have understood his love. You know, I, I guess I'm naive, but I really believe that if you truly understand the love of God, you will be nothing but grateful and your life will be nothing but righteous if you truly understand it. The problem is, what I find is, a lot of people can't really be loved. And if you can't really be loved, it's hard to love. Paul had seen how his heart had been changed. 
Now, I envision this scripture a little bit like a hug. I don't know how many of you are huggers. I know some of you for a fact aren't. So, you know, I've had to learn when you're a pastor and you're a hugger, and I am a hugger. So when you're a hugger, and I mean I hug everybody. So if you're a pastor and and you're a hugger, you gotta learn, you can can kind of feel the person who bristles, right? So uh, I decided some years, a couple of years ago, I thought, you know what I'm gonna do is, is I'm gonna stop hugging people at the back door. And cl- now clearly that makes sense right now, but this is before, before COVID. So I'm just gonna stop because, you know, I don't wanna offend anybody and, you know, I, I don't want anybody to misunderstand uh, what I'm doing. I, I mean, I hug men, women, I hug everybody, but I, I don't want anybody to misunderstand. So I'm just not gonna do it anymore. I'm just gonna, gonna, so several Sundays I'm back there after the 1115 service because that's when I get to go back there and people are walking back and they're walking back and I say to how every Sunday and finally this, this lady in our church, this older lady in our church, she comes up to me and she talks to me the third Sunday that I've decided this and I'm talking to her and she says, all right, look, dang it. Are you gonna hug me or not? She needed it, right? She needed it. And I thought about it and realized she lives alone. People are distant these days. They're careful, cautious. Human touch of the right kind. It means something. But have you ever hugged anybody that doesn't hug you back? Now, I, I know you have. I actually have a daughter that did this for a while. I finally had to say to her, stop it. Now, when I hug you, you lay in. I mean, you know, I, you're my daughter. Come on, baby. So have you ever done that, though? You know, you go to hug them, and they just kind of like, it's kind of like hugging a statue. And then there's the person that you hug, and they just, they just, they just grab you back. It's the bear hug thing, you know? And that reciprocation, when that happens, it's, it's kind of meaningful. I hugged this lady that day, and she just crabbed on. And she said, I got three Sundays worth to get in here. <laughs> so what I envision here is that, that Paul was embraced by Jesus. When he was at his worst, He was lovingly embraced by Jesus. And Paul, who could not love or be loved, if you hear him talk about his past, he was like a stiff statue that Jesus was reaching out to. But Jesus put his resurrection arms around Paul, and Paul had to make a decision, do I reciprocate or not? And his decision was to reciprocate. I take hold of the one who has taken hold of me. We love because he first loved us. So after he talks about taking hold, he talks about pressing on. And this is even more interesting in a way, and I think you'll find it interesting too, but I'm I'm telling you, you missed this in the English. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I press on. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now this word that he uses here for pressing on is the word dioko. Dioko is an intriguing word, and I'm going to tell you why, because it has two very clear meanings. One is to pursue, to chase, 
to go after. But there actually is another Greek word Paul could have used to say I'm following something or chasing after something. He chooses this word because this word more commonly in the Bible means to persecute. In fact, in Galatians chapter 4, when the apostle Paul makes his confession to the church about his former persecution of the church, which they all knew about, remember the stoning of Stephen in Acts, remember that Paul was remember how that worked? Well, well, when he does that in Galatians 4, this is the word he uses, dioko. Now he uses the same word to talk about pursuing God. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, once I zealously persecuted Christians to justify myself and make myself look righteous, but now I zealously pursue the righteousness of Christ, which I cannot obtain for myself. That's an amazing thing. So all of his readers would have known this, you see. So when they read this, they go, oh, I see what you did there, Paul. You're comparing this life now to your former life. Now let's get to another word so we'll understand what he's saying. The word meaning to neglect or to overlook is the word epilanthanomai, or epilanthanomenos is a different form of that same word there in the Greek. And so what Paul is saying here is that I have chosen to overlook my past. Now, this is really important because I think we misunderstand what he means when he says, forgetting what lies behind, I press on towards what is ahead. Forgetting what lies behind, I press on. He doesn't literally mean that he has forgotten his past. He doesn't literally mean that. In fact, he's just referred to his past as a persecutor of the church. What he is saying is that he has made it part of his story of Jesus' transformation of his life. And because his eyes are looking heavenward, he no longer feels shame about those things. He neglects his past. Now, what does that mean? What you feed grows, what you starve dies. Paul is starving the old Paul, Saul. He's starving Saul, and he's feeding Paul. He's feeding the new self that Jesus has made him to be, and he has accommodated what's happened as the story. I told you about the funeral I did the other day. That's what I talked about in the funeral. How God brought this man through the water. Some of you know, you heard his testimony in our men's group. I see a couple of you in here. And so you know that story. It was a powerful story. And the incredible thing about it was how this man talked about his past so openly. But he never did it with like a feeling of shame or dread or anything. He'd just say, that was me. It's who I was. All I cared about was these things. And then Jesus took hold of me and I took hold of him and my life was transformed. You get to choose how your story ends. Now, this is a really important thing. I'm working with a couple recently who have gone through some marriage struggles and marriage crisis. A lot of people have in this period of time and they're asking, are we gonna make it or not? And I just said to them, because I've learned a long time ago not to lay down the law to people. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. I'm just gonna tell you when they're in this situation. So I said, look, here's the deal. You got two hard paths. One hard path path is to work together to get to a different marriage that God had for you when you chose each other. And the other hard path is to call it quits and to have children and to move on somewhere else. But I need to tell you something. The first hard path has an enormous payoff for the good. And the second hard path is going to leave you bitter and angry for the rest of your life. I know that because I've watched so many people walk through it. The first hard path changes the story. Now, some of you have been through marital strife and difficulty, and you've come to a different place. Debbie and I can tell that story about our first couple of years. It's no big deal. It's just part of our story. It's just what God did. 
It's an amazing thing. It's just what God did. It's just what Jesus did in our lives. That's all. But that story becomes nothing but bellyache and regret if it is not accommodated into our transformation process. Do you understand? So what Paul is saying is, look, Jesus, this is the story of what Jesus did. I'll hold it up to you. I was a persecutor, but now I'm a pursuer. I have changed everything about myself in the name of Jesus out of gratitude, and it's all part of my story. So neglecting what lies behind, he presses on, takes hold, gives in, and he lives up. The NIV translates this live up. I'm not going to teach you the Greek here, but you can go look at it if you'd like. It really means walk up. And so what Paul is saying here is because of my gratitude to God, I want to live up to his standard of righteousness in order to show my gratitude and love for him. And so I'm walking with him, and that walk is a journey upward. Live up, Paul says, to the life that has been chosen for you. As citizens of heaven, I preached on this so much in January, I'm going to leave it alone right now. But you better remember right now. You better have remembered this past week. You better keep remembering you are not a citizen first and foremost of this nation or this world. You're a citizen of heaven. You're an ambassador of heaven first and foremost with secondary responsibilities to please Christ in all that you do here. One more thing. A lot of people love to refer to this little section of Philippians. I often hear the term used, enemies of the cross. And when people use that term, Paul talks about those who live according to their appetites or their stomachs. They're driven by that, and that produces shame in their lives. And so now they're living in and out of shame all the time. And Paul says, if we live according to our stomachs, we're going to be really unjoyful people. Our mind is set on earthly things. Please notice how many people's minds are set these days. Christians on earthly things as though they are permanent, as though they are eternal. But note when Paul talks about the enemies of the cross, he's not talking about them as his enemies or his adversaries. I tell you with tears, Paul says, there are people living as enemies of the cross. It breaks my heart. What broke Paul's heart? People who had not been changed by the love of Jesus. That broke his heart. His whole ministry and his whole life now were bent on leading those people to hear about the cross and the empty tomb, about forgiveness and recreation. His whole life was bent on making those who might have been, quote unquote, enemies of the cross into friends of Jesus. That's what he was after in his whole life. These people weren't his enemies to be vanquished. They were people to be loved into the kingdom of God. Now, let me change carpe diem a little, can I? Let's just stop saying carpe diem as though we could seize the day by ourselves. I'm going to give you an alternative thought here. Carpe eternitatum. Seize eternity. Take hold of it. Hug back. Jesus is hugging you. He's loving you. He died for you, so you're fully forgiven. He's feeding the new you. He's nurturing the new you. Press on. Live up. You get to choose to do that. In your freedom, you can choose to be the new you. 
that God is calling you and making you to be, and in so doing, you seize eternity. You've got to understand that gratitude enables us to do that. In Philippians 3, 12 through 21, the Lord Jesus, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform, change completely our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Gratitude enables us to seize eternity today. See, this is the key. Gratitude is something I'm doing today to grab hold of the promises of tomorrow. See, a final thought. Paul says, not that I have already obtained it. Not that I've already grasped it. But he says it's already been given to me. The promise is already there. Paul's already been rescued, already been saved. He already has eternity taken care of. He doesn't have to do anything to earn it. All that's left is for him to be grateful for that. And his gratitude in the day allows him to say, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Allows him to say, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it, rejoice. Allows him to say, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Allows him, gratitude in the moment, allows him to capture the moment for the sake of eternity. Seize eternity. (laughs) Seize eternity. That's what gratitude does. Every day is not Groundhog Day, friends. Every day is Resurrection Day. I don't care what else is happening in life. I don't care if it's your last day on earth. Every day is Resurrection Day. Every day is a day that Jesus rose for. In 1 Timothy 6, 19, another place, he'll use that same word in the Greek, and he'll say, take hold of life that is truly life. The real deal, not the fake. Gratitude enables us to seize eternity today, and it changes fear into hope, and it shifts our life and transforms us from the inside out because the love of Christ is the most powerful force on the face of the earth, and it renders us free to choose the right, the good, the true, the noble. That's where Paul will go next. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the book of Philippians and for the witness of Paul and for this gift of eternity that can be seized right now through gratitude. And I pray that if there's anyone whose story needs to be changed today, whether they are a Christian who needs to take the next step in in taking hold, embracing you back, or whether they're a person who has never been a believer, who's ready to say, I want that kind of love to master my life. I pray, Lord, that through the Holy Spirit, you would draw them closer to you. Help us to seize eternity together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Colombians, I love you, I miss you, I'm praying for you, and I'll see many of you at one o'clock for our annual business session. You go now and ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you soon. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro DC or Northern Virginia area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.